Have you heard the number of times that joy has been mentioned this morning, either by way of a passage of Scripture or something in a song or in Daniel's prayer? One of the most frightening things about that is as Presbyterians, that means we're allowed to smile in worship. So don't be afraid to feel something and to uh, maybe express that with a facial expression. Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to the book of Revelation. This morning, now no, no promises, uh, but this morning I think we will be looking at our last preparatory passage for beginning our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So, so far we've looked at the ministry in Ephesus. Uh, we've looked in Acts 18, uh, some of 19, some of 20. Um, this morning we look at another uh, passage that describes for us the ministry that was taking place um, in uh, the church in Ephesus. Now what we look at this morning, however, is happening uh, give or take a little over 40 years after what we looked at last Sunday. And so one of the things that we get to do, if you remember from last Sunday, there was this exhortation from Paul to the uh, elders at the church of Ephesus, and by way of extension to the church in Ephesus, there, there was this, this exhortation to protect and guard the ministry of the gospel. Well, we now are reading a passage that comes a little over 40 years later, a generation and a half, and we get to find out, well, how did they do? So let's read this morning from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I do have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Because if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning to hear these words and to be able to hear all of them. To be able to hear 
and to be comforted and encouraged by Christ's commendation to this church, but also that we might hear and take seriously the issues that he has with this, this congregation and with any congregation throughout the history of the church, including possibly even this congregation, for when people abandon your love in the midst of trying to serve you. So Lord, help us. Indeed, give us ears to hear. Give us minds that can accept and receive and give us hands and feet that are ready to run forth and to return and do the good works that we have done from the beginning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is a serious sermon, even though we just talked about joy. So I'll say the seriousness with a smile. This is a serious sermon, especially for a Reformed church, especially for a church that takes the Bible seriously, that takes theology seriously. I mean, my goodness, we have an adult class on the Westminster Standards, right? We are professing the faith. And one of the things that can develop within confessional churches because of the seriousness with which we take the Scripture, the seriousness with which we take confessing the faith, the seriousness that we, with which we take that exhortation that we heard last week from the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, that the elders are to protect and guard the ministry of the gospel by making sure that false teachers and false teaching don't come in and mess stuff up. Now that's serious. That's a serious exhortation. And we like to, within our denomination, within our flavor of Christianity, we like that exhortation. We want to take doctrine seriously because we're comfortable with it. But one of the things that can develop and is a serious problem when it develops is when the pursuit of doctrinal faithfulness leads to people forgetting their first love. The exhortation last week, or if I were to use a different word, the command last week to guard and to protect the ministry that command, according to Jesus and Matthew that we read earlier, that command is not more important than the command to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus say? There are no commands greater than those. And that includes the command of protecting the gospel ministry from false teachers and from false teaching. What we read here in Revelation chapter 2 is that the, the elders have done a great job. And they've done a great job for over 40 years. I mean, Jesus is very clear here in his commendation of the church, right? He's like, hey, y'all have taken that, in, that exhortation and you've done a great job with it. 
You don't bear with the false teachers. You examine them. You take it seriously. And if they are found to be false, you don't let them into the church. You don't give them access to my sheep. You guys are serving as good shepherds of the flock. You're protecting them from those outside threats very well. You don't let the false teachers in. You don't let false teaching in. Now, we're not going to examine what Jesus refers to as uh, when he says, I commend you for being against the Nicolaitans. We don't, we're not going to get into all that this morning. But it has to do with false teaching. This is a church with elders who have done a great job in shepherding the body doctrinally. False teachers are kept out. False teaching is kept out. But the exhortation to protect and guard the ministry of the gospel is not simply about doctrine. It is about devotion. From beginning to end, throughout the history of, uh, of redemption as it has unfolded for us in Scripture, God is after one main thing, and that is not obedience, it is devotion. Now, why do I say it like that? Well, if you have devotion, guess what comes from that? You get the obedience, right? But you can be obedient while gritting your teeth and saying, all right, well, I'll do it because you say to do it. I don't really want to do it. I don't, right? We, we have children. Well, we've, we were children. <laughs> and some of us husbands still are children. <laughs> we know what it's like to grin and bear it. That is not what the Lord is after. What the Lord is after is devotion. Hearts that are responding to his love by reflecting that love back to him and reflecting that love to everyone who comes into contact with them. That's what it means to serve as a witness of Jesus Christ. Now what's beautiful here in, in, this, in this text is from the very beginning of, of chapter 2 here, there is this description of Jesus that's a little weird to us, but it, it comes right out of uh, chapter 1. And it's this picture of Jesus walking among these seven lampstands. There are now going to be seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The picture here, is a picture of intimacy. It is a picture of presence. It's easy for us at times to think that within the ministry of the church, because Jesus has gone and has been exalted back to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, it gets so easy to think that we are here on earth carrying out Jesus' ministry for him on his behalf and that we ha just have to get the right formula, or we have to get the right people in place, or we have to have the right programs, or we have to have the right fill in the blank. And what we forget, and what I have been hammering from Acts 18, 19, and 20, 
is that the ministry of the church on earth, it is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ, who, yes, is exalted to the right hand of God, but has sent his spirit, and that spirit has filled his church, and that spirit is empowering the church. That spirit is this incredible divine connection between Christ and the heavenly places and we who are Christ's people here on earth so that everything that we undertake as the people of God is undertaken from a heavenly empowerment. When we get into Ephesians 1, just hold on because that's, we're going to get into it. But that's the basic gist, that there is this... In theological parlance, there is this eschatological presence of Christ among his people here on earth. And it is that presence that sustains his ministry to us and through us. Doctrinal fidelity is absolutely essential to embracing, to experience, to embody that eschatological presence of Christ, that heavenly, ultimate presence of the exalted Christ. Doctrinal fidelity is absolutely essential. But it is, in and of itself, incomplete. And what Jesus tells us here is you can be a church that is maintaining the doctrinal truth, keeping false teachers out, keeping false teaching out, and you can still lose your church. I don't know about you, but that freaks me out. I love doctrine. And theology. I like to read and think. And it is so easy to fall into the error of thinking that as long as you are doing that, that that means you're somehow actually growing in your faith. That learning information translates into growing in intimacy with God. That learning information somehow translates into growing in maturity in Christ. And thinking that somehow having the right information makes you more faithful as a believer. What was interesting is when Christy and I went from being Reformed Baptists to being Presbyterians, one of the things that I noted was, um, and all the things that you would think would be different, one of the biggest things that struck me um, as being interesting in terms of the difference was the difference in jokes. Right, Because we all have jokes about one another. We all have those jokes where we like to make fun of the other side by, by um, really exaggerating certain things about another group. And we do that so that we feel better about ourselves. And because some, oftentimes they are really funny. But a lot of times it's a way of dealing with our own shortfalls. And one of the things that I have seen as someone who has been involved in non-denominational Christianity, someone who has been involved in Baptist Christianity, in Reformed Baptist Christianity, 
in Presbyterian Christianity, someone who dabbled in Reformed Episcopal Christianity, someone who has dabbled in Anglican Christianity, someone who dabbled through friendships in Charismatic Christianity. One of the things that I have seen as I have worked my way through all these different fellowships is that there is this tendency to point out and exaggerate something of another group so that you feel a little bit better about something that's not true of your group. One of the things that I've heard since becoming a Presbyterian is this emphasis on worship. We worship right. Those other groups don't. We take the Bible seriously because look at all, all of our Bible studies and look at all of the different ways that we promote doctrine. Look at the seriousness with which we train our officers and we go down the list of the ways that we do what Christ does actually commend and that is take doctrine seriously and that is to protect the church through doctrinal uh, integrity. But a lot of times we do this not simply in order to try to be faithful in this one area of our calling. We do this to make up for those other areas of our calling that we are not known for. Whereas conservative Presbyterians, we may not be known for evangelism. Whereas conservative Presbyterians, we may not be known for mercy ministry. And I can go down the list, right? And how easy it is to start prioritizing one thing over the other as a way of feeling a little bit better about being better at one thing and not being good at the other. Beloved, that is not what Christ calls us to. What he calls us to is, is to uh, celebrate the good things that, that, you know, with regards to doctrinal devotion and integrity. That's good. And what he is not saying is, so let go of that. One of the things that I heard uh, when I was in non-denominational ministry and Baptist ministry is this mantra over and over and over, doctrine divides, but service unites. Well, guess what? Jesus doesn't agree with that. And it can be very easy to think, well, then, what we need to do is not emphasize doctrine so that we are not being divisive. But that would go against Christ's commendation. Are you starting to feel a little confused? Do you start to, are you starting to feel a little overwhelmed? Well, man, how, how do we do it all? Well, he gives us three things that we are to sow into the culture and life of the ministry of a local congregation and that you are to cultivate in your own personal faith. There are three things that he tells us here. Now, within the context of Revelation 2, he's saying, hey, here's how you can avoid me taking away your lampstand. Now, just real clear about this. This does not mean he's saying they're not, that they're not Christians. He's not saying that they are now, you know, no longer have the hope of heaven. He does, he's not saying that they don't have the assurance of salvation. He's not saying anything about their standing with the Father. What he is saying is this local church may go out of existence. 
right? What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, upon your profession, that truth of what you were saying about me as as the Christ, the gates of hell can never prevail against the church. All right, so this is not saying that somehow that what is happening here is that hell is winning. What we have is Jesus as the sovereign Lord over his church saying to a local congregation, if you don't have a full-orbed witness to who I am and to what I am doing, then I'm going to take away your privilege of participating in this way. And so what does he tell us to do? He tells us to do three things. As those in Jesus Christ who have experienced his love, and especially for those here uh, in the ministry of Ephesus, those who have experienced what? What have we seen in the ministry of, of Ephesus so far? Those who have experienced powerful preaching of Christ from the Scriptures. Those who have experienced the power of seeing sinners brought out of darkness and into light, evangelism, apologetics. Those who have witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit revealing sin so that people come publicly confessing their sin and demonstrating their repentance by getting rid of the instruments of their sin. Those who have seen the powerful presence of the proclamation of Jesus Christ through these supernatural miracles that were attesting to the authenticity of the preaching of the gospel. Those who saw these men attempt a counterfeit miracle where they were overcome by the spiritual forces because they were attempting it outside of Jesus Christ. This is a church who has experienced the powerful presence of Jesus Christ in all kinds of ways. And what he says here is that though you have lost your first love, here's how you get it back. First, you remember from where you have fallen. Now, this is a very dangerous word, remember, because we like to misuse the concept of remembering, don't we? One of the ways we misuse the concept of remembering is remember from where, you ha- from where you're falling. Remember that love uh, from the beginning. That's what we're being called to remember. What we tend to like, or what we tend to remember, if you are someone who Um, the Puritans called weak of conscience, what you tend to remember is not the powerful love of God at work within your life or within the congregation. You tend to remember the ways that you've been hurt. We like to, we don't like to, we just do. We just start, we'll, we'll, we'll struggle with reflecting on ways that people have hurt us. Especially when that hurt has taken place within the church. We will use our memories not to recount and celebrate the mighty work of God and his acts of salvation among us. What we tend to do is remember that sin that someone did against us or that sin that someone did against the congregation. 
Beloved, when we do that, we are remembering the wrong thing. But not only that, we are remembering the types of things that will lead us away from our first love. When you sit there and you reflect and contemplate and remember past sin and hurt, you are trapping yourself in a prison whereby the power of the gospel is kept out. We don't have time for this, but maybe today read through the Pilgrim's Progress and look at that section where where Christian has gotten off of the path and he finds himself under the power of giant despair, finds himself imprisoned in, in giant despair's castle. And look and read about how he gets out. I'm not going to give it away. But what I will tell you is it's a beautiful presentation to us of when we reflect on the wrong thing and the way that we trap ourselves and can grow into a place of despair. And even if you haven't gone all the way to despair, you can live at a level of disappointment. And you can live, and there's, there, is, there is this vast array of options between disappointment and despair, but nonetheless, what you are not doing is living in the power of that first love of God's mighty redemptive acts in your life. You're living in the void of those things, or what you perceive as the void of those things. So in remembering, what we're not emphasizing here is not remembering past sin or what someone did to you or what someone did to this congregation or even the sin that you may have done to somebody the sin that you may have done to the congregation the sin you may have done to another congregation the point here is not to remember and reflect and and focus on those things he's also not saying remember a point in the history of your congregation that you would consider the golden age and then try to recover that. He is not saying, look back and try to find where was that place where we had the most number of people, where we seemed to have the most joy as a congregation, where we were seeing people coming to know Christ, where we were seeing sin being confessed and repented of, when we were seeing these things. This is not a call to try to remember that and to try to figure out, okay, well, what were the things we were doing for that to happen, and let's try to recover that. What he is saying very specifically here is that the life of a congregation and the life of of an individual Christian is to be lived in the remembrance of the powerful, salvific work of Jesus Christ in your life. Reflecting, as the Psalms say, all over the place to recount the deeds of God, to recount the works of salvation. And how often throughout the Old Testament, for example, the people of God, and in the book of Psalms, and in the prophets especially, the people of God are called to remember the work of God in redeeming the people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And in those, in that in encouragement to remember that, he doesn't say, now think back on how bad it was in order for you to appreciate. 
He calls them to recount over and over and over. Do you remember my mighty presence in your midst? Do you remember my mighty works in your midst? Do you remember how I carried you along and how I nurtured you through a desert? How I brought you into the promises that I had made to your, fa- to your forefathers? Do you recount on a regular basis the work of Jesus Christ for this congregation and for you as an individual? Or in your remembrances, are you trying to recapture a golden age that probably never actually existed as you remember? And are you focusing on past sin, whether it's yours or someone else's? Beloved, he tells us to remember this mighty presence and deeds of God in our midst. Remember what it was like in those moments in your life where you really felt that presence of God. Remembering as maybe if you're like me who came to know Christ as an adult where you remember what it was like to be brought out of death and into life. To know that there was the day before you were outside of God and this day God is now inside of you. And to remember that excitement and to remember that joy. To remember what it was like for that freshness of the work of the Spirit within your life. Or if, if you, know, you may not have come to know Christ as an adult and you may have come to know Christ as as a a young covenant child, and you may have the testimony of there not being a time in which you didn't know the Lord. But even within that, there are periods where you know that God was with you in a special way, freeing you from the bondage of sin. Freeing you from a personal sin, freeing you from an effective sin, but that where you know God was present with me. Jesus says, remember those times and remember that excitement and remember that passion and remember that love. So he says to remember and he says to repent. It is from the recollection of the work of Christ within our lives that we are called to repent. We are not called to repent in order to enjoy the powerful work of Christ in our lives. We are called to reflect upon that powerful work so that we will repent. Repent of, the re- of trying to uh, hold on to past bad memories. Repent of allowing some, you know, your sin against someone or someone's sin against you to continue to form and shape your present life, let alone your future. Letting go of those things. Embracing that powerful work of Jesus Christ within your life so that you don't have to be a slave to those past memories. And so that you and the freedom that you have can embrace the love of God in a fresh way so that you can respond to his love with love. So often we will respond to our past hurt and problems within the congregation by doubling down on doctrine and doubling down on the things that are easy for us to do because we like doing them, it is so much harder to allow that doctrine to lead our hearts into celebrating God's presence and repenting of things that are actually holding us back from responding to his love. Last, he says, do the things that you did at first. 
remember, repent. And I, I've, I've, I waffled on the next one. Return or redo, which, whichever you like better. But remember, repent, and redo the things that were done for you as you were cultivating that powerful presence of Christ in your life. When you were experiencing that, that special um, experience of his love and the way that you would respond to that love with prayer, with worship, with giving yourself away to him in serving others around you. Beloved, we can have all the right doctrine. We can believe all the right doctrine. We can profess all the right doctrine and still lose the witness of this congregation because doctrine, as essential as it is, is not a full-orbed witness of Jesus Christ. And so remember the words of Christ himself who says that there is nothing greater than love and remember what Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed, that the world will know that we are his people, not by our doctrine, but by our love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you how easy it is to get caught up in things that are correct to be caught up in, but then to shortchange the other things that we should be doing. We confess that it is easy, especially for this congregation, to emphasize truth and doctrine and Bible study and somehow leave out evangelism, apologetics, caring for the poor, or as we confessed earlier, how easy it is for us to not love what you love. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that you would reorient the loves of this congregation. Reorient our loves to your loves. Lord, there are people in this congregation that are hurting. There are people in this congregation that have sinned. There are people in this congregation that have been sinned against. And Lord, we confess that we have struggled with being more formed and shaped by that sin than by the freedom that you have granted us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we need that powerful work of Christ among us again we ask your spirit to move within us so that we can be a people of confession, but that we could also be a people of forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that you would do this so that we might be freed from the things that are holding us back from a full-orbed witness of Jesus Christ. That you would free us from the things that are holding us back from experiencing the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that you would free us in order to once again renew a true confession of faith, which is one not only consisting of the right ideas, but a commitment to embodying those ideas in acts and words, thoughts, 
and prayers in service of love. Lord, I pray that if there are some within this congregation that need to experience personal reconciliation, I pray that you would not allow them to sleep comfortably until they pursue it. And Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who who can really love and that through the love that we have with one another that Dallas and Hiram and the greater Atlanta area would know that this is a place where we are your people and you are our shepherd. Lord, give us the courage to trust the gospel enough to truly make ourselves vulnerable to one another and to the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to deal with the past rather than living within it so that we can embrace the power of the gospel in the present and do the works, Lord, that will lead us into a future of faithful ministry here at Grace Covenant Church. Do this, we pray, for the glory of your great name and indeed for the joy of your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.